and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, the politics, and the policies that drive Texas. I'm Brian Phillips, Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and one of your hosts for The Right Idea with my co-host, Derek Cohen, who runs our policy shop, our vice president of policy for Texas Public Policy Foundation. How are things going this week, Derek? Uh, Busy. I think we're finally starting to be able to say that we are in session now. Uh, Not only do we have the... uh, you know, appropriation subs, which we'll talk about. But we're actually starting to see postings with actual bills. Actual bills. Um, well, uh, it would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, this week um, um, now I'm, um, was was Mardi Gras. Are you a big Mardi Gras guy? On Tuesday, did you did you go out and celebrate Fat Tuesday or get <laughs> ready for the get ready for Lent? Or uh, No, unfortunately not. Uh, my celebration of Fat Tuesday uh, was essentially, um, I think I had a beer and then maybe watched a little bit of TV and then went to bed. Actually, fairly early. So you know, maybe that is celebrating in a way. Yeah, you know, I went to the University of Texas. We're only about seven or eight hours from New Orleans, so we definitely did that during college. So I got all I needed from the, the <laughs> New Orleans uh, Mardi Gras. But you know, and I, you know, I don't think either one of us are are, are Catholic and follows. But do, you know, a lot of people still try to use this time to give up something or to sacrifice something. And to uh, do, you, are you giving up? You know, I don't know, sweets or. Well, as I mentioned, I've given up sleep. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, there for the session. You know, a lot of people try to give up alcohol, but it, but it is session. So right, maybe on. let's let's, let's be real here, man. <laughs> um, uh, but but you know, session can get deep, and maybe you might need a uh, glass of wine or two uh, towards the end of session. All right. Um, so let's let's uh, do a little bit of housekeeping first. If you'd like to give us feedback, we love getting your your recommendations for stories and things like that. I'm on Twitter at Real Beefill, and Derek is on Twitter at Cohen at TPPF. So we'd love to get your feedback. I'd love to get your constructive criticisms and all that as well. Uh, a couple other things. We have a great weekly newsletter that goes out that is really kind of encapsulates all the things that are going on uh, at TPPF, but also our takes on all the, the various issues of the day. A lot of stuff that we don't cover uh, here on the podcast. Uh, you can sign up for that newsletter at texaspolicy.com slash the post. texaspolicy.com slash the post. Also, next week, Huge week for TPPF. Uh, it is the uh, the annual policy conference that we have that we call Texas Policy Summit. Uh, you can find out a ton of information about uh, who all has been invited, all of the keynote speakers uh, at TexasPolicySummit.com. We have all of, I think for the first time ever in the 20-year history of doing our policy summit, uh, we have the big three are going to all be in attendance. So Governor Abbott, uh, Lieutenant Governor, uh, and the speaker will all be there, as well as a ton of members and experts talking about all the issues that matter uh, to uh, to Texas. Again, that's TexasPolicySummit.com if you would like to, to attend that or watch online. We're going to be live streaming uh, all, of the, um, all of the speeches and all of the, uh, the, um, uh, the various panels and things as well. So, all right, today we're going to get right to it. Uh, later in the program, we're going to go in depth on probably one of the top three national issues. Um, you know, if, if, the, if the economy is number one and immigration is number two, certainly public Public safety mm-hmm. is number three. And of course, Derek uh, ran our Right on Crime program for a long time. So he's probably got some ideas, some thoughts and opinions on public safety we want to kind of get to. Uh, and top topics, we we have uh, de- the president, uh, if he, if he would have just not reversed all of the immigration uh, success that we had had at the border, uh, he may be doing, uh, he may be in a much better shape, but he has reversed a, 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 a reversal of his, uh, of the Trump administration. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that at the border, mm-hmm. um, and then get into some election reform uh, that's going on here in Texas. That's an issue we haven't hit very much, and so I uh, definitely want to hit that. But 
First, before we get to all of that, uh, we, of course, have Derek Cohen giving us our Ledgeland update. What's going on up at the Capitol? Well, as I mentioned, we have the uh, the appropriation subcommittees meeting now. So this is the on the House side. All the uh uh, members of the Appropriations Committee are doled out to these various subcommittees that deal with the different articles of the budget, usually, um, you know, germane to some of their experience. You know, you'll have, you know, Article Three Education, uh, you'll have uh, the Public Safety Articles, which are four and five, and then it kind of gets all over the place, one being the general uh, government uh, which has many of the agencies, two being healthcare. So needless to say, a lot of these have been uh, meeting already. And so we've heard a lot of these um, agencies t- uh, give their testimony already in the Senate and Senate finance. But it's interesting to see a House perspective on some of uh, some of these things. So that's going to be all an arduous process. It's going to uh, continue going just as they really get into the nitty gritty of of the actual budget. Um, you know, big, big Big news last week, you know, we recorded this on Thursday morning before going to the state of the state um, where we saw, you know, seven items. And luckily, yeah, you know, I'm not one for prognostication, but we were largely <laughs> accurate um, with what we discussed. The, the governor's emergency items. Are a- absolutely. And so, I, you know, I mentioned that we're actually seeing hearings posting with bills. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he uh, that he mentioned you know, uh, was property taxes. So I think we're going to finally be able to see some early movement on mm-hmm. uh, those as well. And, you know, we've talked about kind of the competing ideas on there. And while there, uh, you know, there are several bills that are do that are do good in different ways, mm-hmm. it, it'll be very helpful to see both in the Senate and in the House what the chamber's approach to this particular policy quandary is going to so be. So we have, you know, it was things like, school, um, you know, parent empowerment. We mm-hmm. have property tax cuts. Uh, school safety was, mm-hmm. a, was a big one as well. Uh, energy, of course, making sure the grid uh, is still stable. Were there any surprises on there that you thought? Actually, yeah, I, I thought... I thought the uh, ending COVID restrictions was a bit of a surprise. Not that it, not that it's surprising in that it does it's not an issue and doesn't need to be done, um, because you know you and I have discussed the, the problem with you know the emergency uh, declarations. You know as we have to do for various uh, government processes to take place. You know the problem, of course, is the parade of horribles that that enables. Um, uh, elsewhere in statute. Business shutdowns, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Or, or even worse, you're delegating the power to do those things to the petty tyrants at the local level. And I mean, <laughs> not to not to besmirch uh, various county judges, but I think that's where we saw most of the abuses of COVID happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that that kind of kind of surprised me. Um, I think I think yeah. I'm surprised just because yeah. you know I, I think Texas did a pretty good job in terms of um, uh, relieving yeah. the lockdowns and getting our economies back going and getting kids back in schools and things like that. So I think a lot of people might even be shocked that this is still an issue that needs to be not only addressed but right. needs to be addressed in an you know at, a, at an emergency level it needs to be addressed now. So what exactly yeah. are they going to be working on in terms of, of lifting those restrictions? I don't th- I don't so much think it's going to be the end or I mean, it pretty much is, but I don't believe it's going to be, well, we're just going to stop the continuance of these particular declarations. I think what, the, and again, I don't wish to speak for the governor, but what I what I divine from the tea leaves is that he meant basically addressing some of the structural setup around those. You know, he mentioned during the state of the state that after, um, you know, after a certain amount of time call the, calling the legislature back in and having that and having a trigger for that. And I think that that's a really good idea because if something is an actual emergency, like something, you know, the state is, you know, maybe quite literally on fire, 
In that case, you know, the legislature might not be able to convene. But after 30 days, why why not? You know, if there's going to need to start making laws or addressing or appropriating, most likely, uh, money to go after and uh, mitigate a particular disaster, then they need to be in session. Doing it through um, doing it through agency or doing it through uh, the local government fiat just is not a sustainable uh, solution, nor is it compatible with the way we structure our government. I think the one thing that it really um, the w- one thing that it helps is is public knowledge about what it is that the agencies or the governor or other you know members of the legislature actually see are the problem. Mm-hmm. I think the most frustrating thing was you know we understand there's a pandemic going on. We understand there's a public health crisis and that, you know, we may need to take some um, uh, measures in order to, to protect the public, but be open and transparent about what those things are. And if the governor or the mayors or the county judges or whoever can just unilaterally decide with the stroke of a pen without ever, you know, having to explain themselves why they're furthering the lockdowns or why they're furthering the restrictions, I think that really is what drove a lot of frustration. And so if you have the legislature is required then to come back in, in, you at least will have some kind of debate. You'll have some kind of public discussion about here are the statistics, here are the things that we're seeing, right? Let me yes and that because I think that you hit on a really, really good point. You know, we complain to no end about how Congress is basically, while they're while they're physically in D.C., they don't want to do their job anymore. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can say that collectively. You know, Congress has abdicated institutionally so much of its responsibility to executive agencies that I know the, the, the irony is we were just through, uh, a, you know, a president who's very unpopular on the left. And now we have one who's very unpopular on the right. Yet we still can't get to that issue or that, get to that understanding like, wow, with these radical changes in administration priority, why are we wanting the executive agencies to have this large portfolio of authority and power? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, it, you know, we have the memories of a gnat, apparently. But one thing I will say is, even though Congress does or, or that. Or schizophrenic, one of them. It's, can we, like, por no los dos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for this particular thing, for this is something that the legislature here in Texas was frothing at the mouth to address. Like, they wanted to, you know, basically assert their uh, supremacy. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, most American, uh, when I say American, I mean both at the federal level and at most states, you know, have the legislature legislature as the supreme actor in the constitutional order. Mm-hmm. Here's no different. Here they actually want to assert their authority. So mm-hmm. I think that rather than, you know, the secretary shall, the governor shall, so on and so forth, here we have a legislature that says, nope, the legislature will. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, so that makes a lot of sense then. I just think for, for a lot of people, it's like, you know, you walk outside, you go to your store, you don't, nobody's wearing masks. Like it's, you know, people don't feel like we have any of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. So it was a little head scratching, but but it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense now, particularly mm-hmm. for Absolutely. how we will deal with these things in the future. Not necessarily right now, but right. but if there's an, some other kind of public uh, emergency, how we will, we will deal with those things in the future. Okay, all right. Anything else in the legislature we need to hit? Uh, no, just you know, I mean, we're you know we're on that that T minus uh, countdown now. Just ready to get ready to get blasted into space. It seems we like ninety six days, ninety five. How are we? Ninety seven days away. 
I think 96, if I recall correctly, okay. recording on a Thursday. So, yeah, so uh, so uh, b- before Sonny died. Although, who knows? But I who's mean, counting? Yeah, there, there are going to be some really big, tough issues to get through that, mm. that don't necessarily line up right versus left, that aren't going to be, you know, obvious oh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> uh, partisan, um, you know, majority versus minority. So I, I think um, I think there will, you know, there'll be there'll be some 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 very active um, uh, legislative business towards right right up until the the the, the gun goes off. All right, so let's get to a couple of topics, um, and I want to pick a, a couple of things uh, that we don't always talk about, although border security is still the number one issue um, mm-hmm. in the country right now. It's certainly the number one issue in Texas and has been for a long, long time. Um, <clears throat> two days ago, uh, President Joe Biden, and I'll just read from the article, um, Jesuit, President Joe Biden essentially went back to a Trump-era rule. Uh, on the border, which would require anyone who is seeking asylum to first ask for asylum in a country that they've traveled through. So basically, this would apply to everybody coming up from Central America who's going through Mexico, that at some point, in order to even be eligible to apply for asylum in the United States, they would have to ask for humanitarian asylum in Mexico Mm -hmm. first and then be denied. Mm -hmm. Uh, During the Trump administration, this was one of two or three or four really big reforms or really big uh, initiatives uh, that, that stemmed the tide that for the first time we were getting control of the border because we had these rules in place that wouldn't just allow people to walk across the border, be detained by authorities, ask for asylum, and then be released into the United States for some asylum hearing years later. Of course, they you know half or two thirds of them don't ever show up. This was this was a rule that was put in place that really started to stem the tide in terms of, mm-hmm. of people coming here or encouraging people to come here and abuse our asylum system. On the day after the president was inaugurated, or within several days of the president being inaugurated, he reversed that. And of course, that's what opened up the floodgates again. And now uh, he is trying to take credit for the mea culpa and reversing his reversal of of that policy um what's your i mean you know you could go you could go a different a lot of different ways on this i mean obviously it's good policy but or you could just go cynical like why the hell didn't you do it did you do this in the first place thoughts and takes on the politics and policy of of the border well absolutely do uh to, to avoid such cynicism, I'll say, you know, like one quarter of an eighth of a cheer for, for, <laughs> for Biden. Add a boy, just to add. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll give him the A. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's I mean, it's it's an internally consistent policy. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a, you know, it's it's not even you know putting your finger in the hole in the dam because this is like just poking the water and hoping it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, but. Is, is at least an internally consistent policy insofar as it, you know, the ASA, the, the folks seeking asylum, you know, are leaving country X for whatever reason, right? And so in doing so, they have to travel across three, four other countries, uh, that of which they are not being persecuted or the uh, the what qualified them for asylum under the current system uh, would be triggered. So it makes perfect sense there. It's like they need to be safe immediately. Well, they're safe immediately through Mexico and mm-hmm. You know, the countries to the south of there in Central America. 
it, why why does it need to keep coming up you know through to this unmitigated disaster that's that's at our border mm-hmm. and so yeah like i said I'd, I'd give it i'd give it faint praise i mean not naturally having to reinstate this was his own doing mm-hmm. uh one thing i will add though and then because this is a good lesson for policy making generally one thing i would add is sometimes the best solution is doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. And I think that had Biden, at least on the questions of the border, came in and just did nothing, we'd still have we'd still have problems with the system that we have, but a lot of those ancillary um, policies that kind of staunched the flow would have remained in place and we could have dealt with a much more manageable crisis than what we're dealing with currently. There was such a, tr- a push in this administration to be everything anti-Trump. Yes. And certainly the issue of the border, which was the probably the top issue for the president during his presidency, mm-hmm. that you could de- you could demonstrate um, that you were anti-Trump in no bigger way than mm-hmm. to go directly at his border policies. Um, and of course, unfortunately, uh, the border policies were working. They were actually um, holding the border. The, this is now the second time that the president has reversed his reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, he came out very strong against Title 42. Uh, most, I'm sure, most listeners and, and watchers understand what Title 42 is. That's been in a big debate over whether or not that's even good policy, but at least mm-hmm. it was working for a while. Yes. But that was the second time is that he came out and now they were supportive uh, at the end of last year of keeping Title 42 and actually argued in court for keeping uh, Title 42. Um, and so, yes, I think it's it's easy to be cynical. I think it's I think it's just sad, honestly. I just think it's very disappointing because of the crisis that's occurred at the border and the rush to be, you know, everything anti-Trump. Um, and there's certainly other um, uh, there's certainly other uh, examples of that, whether it's energy and you know become when we were energy independent, of course. Um, criminal um, justice and public safety. Criminal justice, public safety, the, the second uh, second step act or first step act. Sorry, we're not quite to the second step. First step act. A, a lot of those things, uh, you know, and his rush to be anti-Trump um, that that reversed good policy. So very frustrating. I'm sure for the border communities um, that um, that this is uh, welcome, but probably a little little bit too late. Absolutely. Um, all right. So another issue that we want to get into um, is election oversight. I mean, we just had, you know, last session where I guess we're all a little exasperated um, uh, because election reform, election integrity reform um, was such a big issue in the last session. And it felt like, you know, everybody was pulling for, you know, two, three, you know, extra legislative sessions. Um, because special, that's what happened. <laughs> special sessions. Yeah, we didn't feel like it. We were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, but we got it across the line like you know like the conservatives got really good reforms across the line um and so it felt like they had they had really uh, addressed a lot of the issues but then the election happens and then you have all of the problems that happened in harris county and you have all of the reactions from officials in harris county that expose that still a lot needs to be done uh one of those things is uh, as a, a legislation reform that has uh, been proposed in the senate by uh senator brian hughes senator paul Betancourt, mm-hmm. um that would give more recourse for folks who feel like there have been election irregularities mm. during the election um, but they're but they're hitting a wall because most of the time the county gets to determine whether or not investigations happen so lay out 
and get uh, get your uh, thoughts on this. This would allow election judges, candidates, county chairs of political parties. I mean, people who who oversee uh, the elections and have a real stake uh, in the outcomes of the elections, not just voters, but but folks who work on this all the time, would be able to petition or be able to ask questions mm-hmm. of the county election officials, um, uh, and they and they would expect you know expect to get in a reasonable amount of time mm-hmm. answers. They can go through this process twice, and under this legislation, if they're still not satisfied if the answers still have not come there would be additional recourse mm. where they could then go and petition the secretary of state uh what do you make about the what do you make of this legislation i mean it makes sense it's a, it's a standard deconfliction uh process because you have an issue here where you know the you don't need to look too far to see why the current system um it raises a lot of questions for example you know we're going to talk about public safety later one of the things that I hear on the left all the time is, well, we can't, we can't trust the police to, you know, police themselves. And, you know, from a incentive standpoint, I, I get that. Now that's, you know, then their solutions are obviously crazy then. Um, but from an incentive point, that makes sense. But how is that rationale any different then, than a, you know, judges, um, county officials, folks who actually may have benefited from a, problem if there was one to take a scrutinous uh, sober-eyed view of looking into it it just it does not line up incentive wise now what i i like about uh this particular approach it also doesn't ratchet everything up all the way to you know 11 you know saying you know this guy sneezed on me in line at a polling place and therefore i had got out of vote or got out of line and my vote was called you know what i mean it didn't rockets that to the supreme court or something uh something like that but that being said, is... Not being sneezed on should be a human right, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was... It's just gross. But anyway, go ahead. No, I, look, I'm not, I'm not pro-sneeze, let, <laughs> let, lest anybody hear otherwise. I'm not pro-line sneezing. Just say it. It was your analogy. You brought it up. <laughs> but all that, all that to say is it takes a measured view of what might be asymmetric incentives and offers a pathway to get those remediated by folks who don't benefit uh, from a problem should it exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, and even though this doesn't necessarily let you know any voter yeah. um, uh, bring a case or, or ask questions, it's still, like you said, I mean, it alleviates. If you if you think the problem is the way that the that the county is administering the elections, I mean, we saw all or in Harris the- County's case, not. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, they didn't even have enough paper. Like, how does that happen? And you start asking questions like, how do we, how do we, you know, first we have to um, figure out what the problem was in order to fix it. But if they're stonewalling and they're not taking any, you know, responsibility for it, you know, prior to this legislation, you know, that would be it. You know, there's that you would, you wouldn't have any recourse to try and figure out how to make the election um, uh, run smoother. You know, you're not even talking about, you know, fraud at this point. You're just simply saying like, when I show up, are we going to actually have paper ballots to actually vote? Um, so this does give more recourse. Um, you know, it puts a lot more, I think, um, responsibility and more on the plate of the Secretary of State, which may or may not be a good thing uh, for her. But but um, at the same time, this at least feels like we're, we're not, you're not going to hit a log jam. You're not going to hit a wall, um, you know, asking the people who have an interest in not fixing the system to right. try and fix the system. Um, another piece of legislation that I know that um, that um, you know a lot about and, and we're pretty supportive of uh, is SB2. Mm-hmm. I think that was released this week, restoring um, a higher illegal voting penalty restoring that to a penalty right. uh, fel- wow Fe- <laughs> felony i would say we can put those together a, a penalty a is penalty. like that's like yeah we're not even, yeah <laughs> go a lot of different directions there mm-hmm. um so it'll restore it to a felony take us through kind of right. the backstory of this because may, some people may not even know that that this yeah happened. and I, I, this might sound a little inside <laughs> baseball-y but a, a, as you remember 
you know, we had a offense for uh, illegal ballot harvesting that pre-existed um, that pre-existed the election reform from last year. Um, one person, I, I believe her name was Crystal Mason, uh, got caught up in that uh, for something that was, you know, largely a mistake. Now, there are two ways when addressing criminal law. There's two ways of 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 tightening it up. You, one, you can change the the scienter or mens rea requirement, basically saying what was the guilty state of the threshold of the guilty state of mind in order to have committed that offense. Mm-hmm. And another way is you can just make the you can make the punishment sting more or less. And so usually you do one or the other when trying to do these fine uh, adjustments. They did both last year. They they both put a strong mens rea component. I believe it was knowingly. So you have to knowingly have committed the crime. Mm-hmm. But then they have also dropped that down to a, uh, a class A misdemeanor. So it kind of it, it was it, <laughs> it kind of took the the wind out of the sails of that particular criminal offense uh, twofold. So what what they're going back and now again going back the other way, the same things are on the table and they've chosen to restore the penalty, which is good because you don't want to start taking, you don't want to start making strict liability crimes where, oh, you've done it. So, I mean, even if it's through no knowledge of your own, you're still guilty of it. Mm-hmm. So you, it, it's very hard to start tweaking criminal laws in terms of that mens rea requirement. But in doing so here by just uh, increasing the penalty says, look, okay, we're still going to say if you've knowingly done this, you're guilty. But you're going to have that that stiffer penalty on the other side. That's so that makes perfect sense. Again, yeah, it makes it makes good logic. I mean, um, you know, if, if there are accidents that happen, there are people who unknowingly, um, you know, vote in the wrong place or, you know, don't change their address or something like that. Um, and, and there are accidents that happen. Uh, so it makes sense that that we that we'd strengthen it or limit it to people who are you know going after the people who are actually trying to yeah. defraud the elections, people who are, who are trying to find these loopholes right. in our rules in order to get, you know, people who shouldn't vote into the ballot box or get people to multiple you know vote multiple times and if i may if you look at both the mason case and and others the these cases don't turn on the interpretation of the mens rea component you know Mm -hmm. it's basically because it's really hard to claim oh well i accidentally ballot harvested because i had thousands in my car (laughs) with all these different names of dead people on or whatever the case might be Mm -hmm. Those are the typical cases. So, but you still want to have that again, that strong mens rea component, so that you're you're getting the right, you're getting those people. You're not getting the crystal masons. Well, and then there was the the story of the guy who was just stealing mail. Like yeah. he was just he was looking for social security checks or whatever, and they found like 300 ballots in the back of his car. I mean, you know, obviously he's doing like the the awful thing. I mean, that wasn't an accident. They probably should throw all kinds of books at that guy. Uh, and then, I mean, at least put the ballots back, maybe, you know, like have some <laughs> have some pride, you know, about about American democracy. Um, all right. So um, with the time that we have left, we have about 10 minutes or so, um, I do want to get to the issue of public safety. And, and there's not you know, that's not like a, a legislative issue, you know, like like border security or, or the you know inflation, or the economy. It's it's a very general issue. And, and public people's ideas of public safety um, can can vary. But I didn't want to hit it because it. It always comes up. I mean, it always comes up, uh, not just in the polling and the public opinion surveys, which we do a lot of, but it's everywhere on the news. I mean, obviously, you know, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads, and if it's local, you know, the the news is are going to cover it. In Austin, I mean, it made national news. This drag, the video of the drag racing that was going on, the lawlessness. It's uh, uh, that's what I did for uh, Mardi Gras. As, <laughs> I was noticing that you had you know some burn on your tires. I was uh, like, you know, are you just mudding or what are you doing? I, I live life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> um, 
um, in your Buick. Um, <laughs> no, oh, uh, but anyway, it's obviously a very serious issue, a public safety issue, and of course that you have the you know the video, the awful videos of the crowds pushing the cops back and uh, in the vehicles and all and all of that. Um, but and, and that's just one limited example of what it seems like almost every day, whether it's Fox mm-hmm. News or other um, uh, outlets that are that are finding these things and pushing them out there and trying to demonstrate that there is a rise in crime under Biden. Um, is it defunding the cops? I mean, is it, you know, that's one of the things that you hear, of course, is that, you know, a lot of cities defunded cops after the, the, the riots and the, the, you know, the social discontent, I guess, of mm-hmm. 2020. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that happened in places in Texas, but certainly all around the country. You know, is it defunding the cops? Um, or, is it, or is it, you know, do you think, you know, having someone who's studied these issues for a long time, is it, is it deeper and more than that? It's, it's definitely deeper and more than that. I mean, obviously, you know, with um, some of the legislation that passed last session, defunding the cops, Harris County's finding out the hard way, or defunding law enforcement is, um, you know, it comes with a very severe penalty, uh, administratively speaking. Um, but that's really not what's to blame here. Now, you also have to keep in mind, um, you also have to keep in mind, you know, it's, it's not like there is a or there was this long-standing campaign against street racing in the state of Texas. Now, there has been an, like certain hyper-local applications. I know Harris County, Houston, uh, has had problems with groups like this, uh, you know, for a long while. Yeah, for a while. I was in high school in here. But... I, I was going to say, yeah, I can, I, I'm trying to rack my brain to think about, like, how many sessions I've heard, um, you know, a member of the Harris County delegation lay out something, and, I, and me hearing about this and, you know, not having uh, grown up in Houston, I'm completely uh, taken aback by it. But that being said, so, so yeah, it came to Austin. So the fact that it emerged or that it happened really isn't the issue. The issue is you had the very, very long 911 wait times. You had the one officer on the scene or the one car on the scene get, you know, driven back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't much that uh, that he could have done. But getting more officers on the scene, and here's where I think you're starting to see uh, you're starting to see problems is because one of the issues that the Austin police reform community has has brought up, and they are, you know, they're they're folks who I believe are well-meaning, but their ideas are, uh, I I, th- I think I can characterize them accurately using their own words by calling them abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said is, you know, they address things such as, you know, use of force standards. Austin has one of the, the best use of force standards uh, in the state, you know, because they know how much attention is paid to this. Um, but even moving further away from uh, less than lethal force, you know, they've taken a lot of options off the table for dispersal of crowds and mm-hmm. things like that. Now, again, when you only have one officer on the scene, him trying to disperse a crowd. Not, the math doesn't work out there. The the word the left you it feels like they use all the time is de-escalation. Right. Right. Like don't escalate the situation. How how and to the point to use this example, I would say how would you de-escalate that situation where people are running over, you know, <laughs> fires and catching their trucks on fire and yeah. stuff like that and just you know, just absolute um you know, I've seen people say chaos, chaos and anarchy. Yeah, and, right, sure. But like I I don't have a better word to describe it because mm-hmm. that's you know, that's the core function of what the police should be doing. And, you know, when you tie nine fingers behind their back, it, it 
you wonder why you get this kind of outcome or what seems like a you know ineffectual response when truth is they were probably they probably uh, played every uh, every card in the hand mm-hmm. you know when we look at public opinion on this and we, and we we've tried to you know understand exactly the how the the public the, the majority of the public in Texas and places around the country feel about this um, you know what we get is particularly at heightened times of crime you know what you get is this outpouring of like you know just make it stop right like just yeah. be very forceful and right. and go out and, and go get the criminals and and put them behind bars and mm-hmm. you know and protect the public from the threats that are out there but at the same time and I don't think this is schizophrenic I think this actually no. is very fairly reasonable is at the same time they realize that not everybody is a mass murderer that needs right. to be put away for the rest of their life or some horrible child rapist or something the right. vast majority of criminals are people who who we all would think do not deserve to spend the rest of their life in jail. And so you have this kind of two-prong approach um, that the public wants to see. And I want to get your, I I don't know if there's a magic unicorn policy that fits all of this, but here's, well, just kind of lay it out. That's what the public wants to see. They know who the major threats are and they know that those people should be behind bars probably for the rest of their life, at least for a long, long time until they've fully uh, rehabilitated. Mm. Um, And so there needs to be an an element of of crime prevention, right? Mm -hmm. And so to put Mm -hmm. those people behind bars, but then also there needs to be enough cops on the streets to feel like I can walk around without, you know, without without being mugged or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. At the other side of that is once someone commits a crime, there needs to be some kind of program. Or, I mean, just using this language, I don't know, you know, exactly what it is, but some kind of effort to make sure that that person understands not only do they, you know, not only is there justice, they serve their time, mm-hmm. but that there's some kind of effort to I, maybe helps not the right person, the the right word, um, but but some kind of initiative to to rehabilitate, rehabilitate people yeah. to say you you know understand that what you did was wrong and and understand the reasons why you were putting yourself in that position. Maybe it's lack of social services, a lack of health care, or sorry, a lack of education, um, you know, family services, you know, all kinds of reasons. Maybe there's drug and and alcohol abuse, or there's um, uh, mental health issues, mm-hmm. things like that. The public does want some effort in that direction. Yes. It's not like we just put everybody who ever committed a crime behind bars. And so is there a public policy, a magic wand that you can wave where the system can differentiate between the major threats who should probably spend the rest of their life in jail, throw the book at them, yes, check that box, we're done. But mm-hmm. then there's some kind of effort on the part of, of our officials mm-hmm. in the system to make sure that folks are you know coming out, being rehabilitated, and then have opportunities to not, you know, to not get back into that life. Wow, that's like a like a fourfold. Yeah, question. <laughs> no, I know. It's uh, but that, but that's really the public policy, yeah. you know, problem. Right. No, and uh, and very very rarely on the show do I get to uh, mention uh, some of my academic work. So allow me to <laughs> allow me to shout out uh, one of the first papers that I did: uh, rehabilitation in a red state, 2014 criminology and public policy. Um, there we go. Um, no, but we looked at me and my co-authors looked at that exact phenomenon that you brought up because we did a poll in Texas about some of the work that went through in 2007, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know, again, without belaboring the point, in 2007, Texas took a long, hard look at the way the entire prison system was structured, went ahead and made uh, fairly modest changes, to be honest with you, but ended up redounding to the sense of public safety, of correctional expenditures, so on and so forth. Um, That being said is, is the public we were looking is the public sentiment still with you and what we found and this is very interesting and this was the if i had to say this was the contribution of this paper to the to the field was that it essentially illustrated that the ideas of rehabilitation and punishment 
are not in conflict. Uh, essentially, that people want to punish, like people do feel a moral appropriate, you know, feel moral opprobrium towards lawbreaking, mm -hmm. and they want that person to suffer for that. But they also want them to successfully and as soon as safely possible rejoin the community as a productive citizen. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a good shorthand for how we describe um, criminal justice in general. Now, a lot of people just want to do the rehabilitation side, the you know the more hug a thug types. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, not every rehabilitation program fits every offender typology or pathology. It's, you know, we just need to have the flexibility to do that. Now, to your actual question, what about the policy? The policy that we need, and I'm going to punt to actually an article, or should I say uh, work in criminology that came out a couple years prior to, going all the way back to Jeremy Bentham in, you know, in England. Um, essentially, you know, punishment needs to be swift. It needs to happen proximate in time to the incident happening. It needs to be certain. There needs to be knowledge that it's going to happen, and it needs to be commensurate with what the actual offense was. And if any one of those three are out of balance, you're not going to have the deterrential or even rehabilitative effect that you're looking for in that system. So that being said, what's one policy that can make? Well, we, again, you, you heard the governor say this. You heard the lieutenant governor say this. You've heard um, uh, members of the House uh, in the various areas say this. We need to get these prosecutors under control. And that's mm. not, and, and I, I hasten to add, when we're talking about prosecutors have completely abandoned the field of law, and, not even of law and order, but just rule of law, right. we're talking about the number that you could count easily on two hands. Mm. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to, you know, find who the Erath County prosecutor is and find out why he's not prosecuting murder or drug charge. Right. But, but what, we, what we're seeing is the major counties mostly, have these programs where they essentially just do not prosecute as practice certain broad categories of crime without individual review on the individual case. Right. That is completely, completely uh, against rule. Now, we'll tell you, like, you know, here at, right on crime, we've supported these uh, diversion programs. And a diversion program is, say, where a, where a prosecutor requires somebody charged with, say, uh, possession of marijuana or whatever the case is. Like, look, I don't want to take a marijuana case to a jury or even, you know, to a judge. If you come to this education program, you do X, Y, and Z, we'll seek a deferred adjudication or, you know what, we won't even file, you know, mm -hmm. but you just need to check these boxes. But but it, but yeah. to your point, it checks that box of there's some level of justice going on. Ab absolutely. And not only that, but it's subject to individual review. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference between that and the other is, again, you're looking at that case individually versus you're looking at all marijuana events saying, yeah, we're just not doing that. Right. Or and, people running into a CVS and filling up their backpacks and deciding never, not not even to stop them, much less yeah. prosecute them. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. The, the way to get around that, I think, it would be to not only there there is uh, more direct accountability measures that we've already seen filed, but even with on the diversion side, if you spell out what a diversion program can look like in statute, mm -hmm. then a prosecutor doesn't essentially have to use the amorphous concept of discretion in order to divi divert somebody away from the system, having that justice actually applied. So this would satisfy then that that you know, feeling of, look, there's, there is somebody somewhere who is able to look at this in a reasonable way and, and institute some element of justice into the program. Mm -hmm. We're still, we're telling that person you did a bad thing and there will be repercussions, yeah. but we're not necessarily throwing you, you know, throwing you right. into pr hardcore prison and sending you away for yeah. forever. Right. And I mean, I think, I think some of our friends uh, are too hasty to, to that too. And the fact that, you know, an, an easy, remember what we talked about earlier, one easy way of, putting the sting in, in a crime or in criminal activity 
is increasing the penalty. And there are, and I'll be the first to say, there are crimes that are woefully undercharged mm. that have a really soft um, uh, sentencing bracket because, again, we, we have big sentencing brackets in the state. There are those that need addressed. But that being said, though, we can't just categorically, you know, the closest weapon to hand being, we'll just increase the penalty. Mm -hmm. You know, that tends to miss a lot of opportunities. And, you know, we're not talking like, you know, you've heard the governor and lieutenant governor say, you know, if you're going to use a gun in a crime, you're, there's going to be a mandatory minimum. Yeah. Now, I think, again, the devil's in the details and we're going to have to be very, very um, careful on how those mandatory minimums are um, constructed because what we've seen in other states, specifically back in the going far back as the eighties, sometimes mandatory minimums, if they're too onerous, will actually like the they, they fall off the charging instrument. You know what I mean? So what the conduct that will be allowed or alleged won't be ones that satisfy that, even if what actually happened satisfies that. So right. you don't you don't you don't want to create like basically a. <laughs> a gray market for discretion. You know what I'm saying? Right. You don't want to create that, but you also want to make sure that if somebody uses a gun instrumentally in a crime, absolutely they should yeah, be in j right. prison for 10 years. But again, we need to make sure that we're having the discussion specifically both about mens rea and about the instrumentality to make sure that that doesn't over And we, while we still have one minute left, is there somebody who's doing this really well? Is there a state or a locality or a city who's been, you know, really focused on this in the last five or 10 years that, that you know, maybe could be a model? To be honest with you, at, from a, <clears throat> a completely holistic perspective, I think where Texas has been and the trajectory it's going in is good. Again, presupposing that we are going to be having these what, what's going to be hard, you know, difficult discussions on some of these issues. But, you know, Texas has very few sentence enhancements, very, you know, almost no mandatory minimums. Um, and so this would be like almost not, not first of a kind, but this would be relatively unprecedented because we're a large jury sentencing state. Right. And so only addressing these specific things rather than making uh, blanket categories, say, based on like offense level mm -hmm or very amorphous criteria that could apply to, a, you know, 90 different crimes. I think that I think that's the way to do it. You know, this is rifle shot. It's not uh, scatter shot. You're such a homer. I mean, <laughs> you know, of course you would say Texas. <laughs> but, but that was kind of easy. <laughs> that is yeah, that is an easy setup, though, because Texas has been working on these issues for several decades. So, mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, we will close it up there uh, with public safety. Thank you again uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate you listening. We really appreciate you um, uh, watching. Again, if you have any feedback for us, we'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to get your feedback and, and constructive criticism. Again, I'm on Twitter at RealBPhil, and Derek's on Twitter at Cohen at TPPF. Thank you for watching. And as always, do good and suffer the consequences.